Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. Originally, um, we were going to do one sermon. I, this this kind of became two, and, and you'll see why. But As we start today, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to picture something with me. As I was thinking through this passage, this story, just I, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I just began to picture this. And so I want to want to ask you just for a second, don't look at your Bible, just go down this road with me and picture this story that illustrates this passage. I want you to imagine with me 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago, a great ocean liner carrying its passengers from the East Coast across the Atlantic. There are on this ship people from every class of society. Some are the top of the top. They're the wealthy of the wealthy. Others are those who are just trying to make ends meet, just trying to get to the next paycheck, sweeping decks and cleaning dishes. During the voyage across the Atlantic, two of these classes collide as an old man, part of the wealthiest of the wealthy, befriends one of the young waiters that's just trying to make it to the next check. They form a relationship as night after night this waiter serves the kind old man. They strike up conversation and eventually form a friendship. Possibly because the old man really has no one else close to him in his life. Somewhere nearing the European side of the Atlantic, the old man calls the young waiter to his quarters after his shift. I have something to talk to you about. As he comes to the quarters, the old man begins to explain that, that this is the final trip he'd be taking across the sea. He had found out previously that he had a terminal disease. He was told by doctors that these would be his very last weeks. This trip across the sea was one of the final things he'd wanted to do. He'd had opportunity to do just about everything as his money had afforded him just about every luxury in the world. But there was one last thing on this trip that he purposed to do with these final days. He needed to give away what was left of his fortune. He had brought with him on this voyage his final ounces of gold which he had decided he would give to someone on this ship. His decision was to give it to this young waiter who had befriended him. The old man opened a trunk at the foot of his bed and pointed to a leather bag with a gold clasp and two long silver straps. As he opened it up, the young waiter's eyes couldn't, he couldn't believe his eyes because the, the gleam from 700 ounces of gold nearly knocked him off his feet. The old man took the bag, handed it to the young waiter, looked him in the eye and said, you've got your shot at this world, don't waste it. The young waiter promptly hid the bag in his quarters, deep in his closet, making sure it was safe. That night as he was working in the restaurant, there was a violent noise and a jarring, nearly knocked him off his feet. There was some murmuring about what this was, but then within minutes, there were crew members over the loudspeaker giving orders throughout the ship. There was a problem, and there was 
water being taken on. The people began running to the places on the upper decks where the, there were boats to take people off of the great ship. Some of their, them were large, some of them were small. There were two thoughts going, going through this young waiter's mind. First, he needed, needed to make sure that he was getting off of this ship and that he was safe. Second, he had to get back to his room to get that bag. He quickly began making his way through the chaos until he came to his room, not caring for anything else except for a picture of he and his grandmother. He grabbed that brown leather bag that he had hidden away and ran toward the upper decks. He got there just in time to board one of the boats that was lowered into the water. Many other boats were in the water, but they were further out, further away from the main vessel. He felt he was safe, and he, and he clutched this leather bag that weighed nearly 50 pounds. He wondered about the old man. Had he gotten off? Had he tried? How lonely a life he must have lived. Suddenly, the waiter looked up and as his boat had just entered the water, he saw another, a bigger boat that was above him. He heard a cracking noise a, and a whip and noticed that one of the ropes lowering this larger boat into the water had snapped and it looked as if the whole boat was coming down. In a few moments, he could tell that his fear would come true and the boat came down and plummeted into the water only feet from his own boat. The water displaced made a great wave and overtook his boat. The small boat turned over, and he and the other passengers within it were plunged into the icy waters. As he began to swim to the top, he felt as if he was being pulled under by another passenger. He struggled to get to the top to get a breath of air. As he fought to tread water, he realized that, that this weight that he felt was not another person. It was the leather bag that the old man had given him. Out of the corner of his eye as he made his way to the top, he saw a, a boat close enough to, for him to swim to. He pointed his body in that direction and began to fight the cold waters to get to safety. As he swam, he realized that the next boat was further away than he originally thought. He would have to swim further and he would have to swim faster. He was slow going and he was extremely fatigued. He kept fighting and Soon the thought flashed through his mind, if, if I don't make it to that boat, I, I won't make it at all. He knew that the bag that he had been carrying, that had been his for only hours, this, this bag that had come to mean future comfort and security and enjoyment and success, this bag was holding him back. He shook this thought out of his mind quickly, reminding himself that, that after all, this meant a new start. What could this money bring? What a life change this could mean for him. But within moments, the realization set in. What he was trying to do was physically impossible. This heavy bag with its strap wrapped tightly around him several times was going to kill him. In a moment, came to his senses and frantically began trying to unwrap himself from these straps that were around his chest and arms and in an effort to release this bag so that he could swim, so that he could get to this boat. But it was difficult. It was a 
mess of wet clothing and his hands were cold. As he fought to stay afloat, trying to free himself, he pulled out a small knife out of his pocket. With his body more and more fatigued every second of this fight, he finally found a thin spot in the strap and as fast as he could and with all of his might, he pulled the knife across the strap and immediately he felt the weight removed. How could he do it? 700 ounces of gold in today's economy is $1.3 million. How could he give that up? Because in that moment, in that water, he realized that the very thing that he thought was gain for him was loss. It was no longer viewed as a benefit. It was viewed as a liability. Over the next two weeks, we'll be going through an amazing passage in chapter 3 of Philippians. And my goal is spiritually to bring you to the exact same place that that man was in. My goal will be exhort you in two ways over these new, next two weeks. First, to guard against self-sufficiency. To guard against self-sufficiency. Second, to glory in the Savior. We'll see how they work. Chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection. This week, guard against self-sufficiency. Guard against self-sufficiency. Paul says to these Philippian believers, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, what in the world is going on here? It's not often in the Bible we get this type of talk, this type of language for the people of God. Throughout the New Testament, here's what's going on. What you have to realize is that the churches that were established had a problem, and the problem had to do with the relationship of Christianity to another, let's call it a parent religion. What was it? Judaism. 
there was a problem in trying to figure out how exactly are these two going to fit together. Should, should Christianity rightly be seen as a, a, just a sect of Judaism? Is that what was going on in the first century? Is Christianity essentially Jewish? This was the fight that they were in. This was what they were trying to figure out throughout the New Testament. And what this would mean is that some would approach Christianity and, and, and promote legal adherence to the Jewish law. Legal adherence to, to this code of conduct. It would include things like abstaining from certain foods. It would include things like observing certain festivals and days and holidays. And maybe most importantly of all, the men would be circumcised. It's a sign of the, in the Old Testament of Abraham's relationship to God. It was a sign of the faith that he had in God. And it became an identity marker for the people of Israel. How would these two fit together? We see these issues coming up in, in Acts and Romans and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Colossians and 1 Timothy and Hebrews and here in Philippians. Throughout the New Testament, this is an issue. So you say, why do you talk about self-sufficiency? Why is your exhortation to us to guard against self-sufficiency? Because the reason is that these issues weren't merely about cultural expression, you see? They weren't merely about what things might be good for the people of God. They became about what was necessary for the people of God, and that is a huge difference. In other words, these groups of so-called Christians were in churches teaching that observance to the Jewish law was necessary for a person to be in a right relationship with God himself. Let me give you a snapshot of this from Scripture, a snapshot of this fight and this struggle. This is a scene from the book of Galatians with the Apostle Paul recounting how he himself interacted with Peter, another apostle who almost got sucked into this whole mess. Paul says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Modern day language, I got right up in his grill about this thing, okay? For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The circumcision party is these people saying, you've got to adhere to this law to be right before God. So Peter's afraid of these people. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, quote. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This was a huge issue in the New Testament church. Why is Paul so fervent about this? Why is he so fired up about this issue? The answer is in verse 3. Look at this with me. 
out for those dogs, those evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, those promoting circumcision. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You have to see what's going on here. First, it's a contrast. He's saying there's those who are, who are doing circumcision, who are mutilating the flesh. That's strong language. We can get into that on another day. He's saying those people are doing this, and we, by contrast, we put no confidence in the flesh. What he means to say is those people are putting confidence in the flesh. By promoting those things, by focusing on those things, by teaching those things, talking about the flesh. Well, in the New Testament, Paul uses this term flesh in, in a few different ways. One is literally just flesh. What's on my bones? The physical makeup of a person. But, but probably more often than not, Paul sees the flesh as that which characterized a person in their unconverted state. Who you were as a non-Christian. Now, those, those things you, you realize, uh, Galatians and Romans and, and other places talk about we still fight and war against the flesh, right? Those things still are part of our experience. But what Paul is saying here is that these people are putting confidence in what they can do outside of the gospel. Their life outside of Christ, their life apart from Christ. And what he says about it is very interesting. We put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that word confidence, I want to show you two other ways that Paul uses it, or two other instances that Paul uses it in this book of Philippians. It's helpful. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, and I am sure of this, that I am sure of this, that's literally one word, it's the same word as confident. Paul has become convinced of something, Later in chapter 1, he says this, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain. Both of those are the same word. You see, confidence in some ways is weak here. Confidence is, well, I think something might happen, and if I have to lean one way or the other, I guess I'll lean that it'll happen. I'm, I'm confident after all. But Paul isn't just talking about that type of confidence. What he's talking about is a conviction. I'm convinced of something. I have been persuaded by something. And so now take that meaning back into this. And he says, we as Christian people in Jesus Christ are those who have not been persuaded, convinced by the flesh. So what on earth are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Those who are convinced and persuaded by the flesh take attack on life that essentially says, I can do before God something that will merit his acceptance. I'm persuaded of it. I'm persuaded that I can, I can work up enough good, I can do enough volunteering, I can change enough behaviors. Persuaded of it. Paul says, we Christian people are not convinced by the flesh. We don't put confidence in the flesh. We are not persuaded by it. 
We do not believe that our goodness or our observance to certain laws or religiosity is sufficient before God. In fact, the very opposite. This is utterly contemptible to Paul. And this is why he uses such strong language. That those dogs, those evildoers, those who, who mutilate the flesh, this is very strong, even offensive language. And that's how strongly Paul feels. See, this is the place where we have to decide. In our day and age, does this really matter? I've been a Christian a while now, and I've been in churches all my Christian life, in ministry most of them, and I can tell you, I have never, never, never run into a person who was trying to circumcise other people. I shouldn't have said it that way. It's trying to promote that for other people. Ed, anyway, okay. This isn't an issue, is it? So you could come to this and say, wow, it's too bad that the New Testament church was, was having to deal with these issues, the, these issues of legalism, these, these issues of what you have to do to be accepted before God. It's too bad. I'm glad they got that all straightened out so that in the 21st century, we don't have to deal with this stuff. one of our elders is laughing at me right now because we do deal with it. I, I would say this. This issue that Paul deals with about confidence in the flesh, being persuaded in the flesh, being persuaded by what we can do is a major issue in the church and in the mission of the church. I'm astonished at how many people fall into this trap of putting their trust and their confidence and their persuadedness before God in the flesh, of of trusting what they can do before God rather than what God has done on their behalf. People who think that they can somehow merit his acceptance and his forgiveness and his relationship. I, I see this at certain Point, some more than others. I, I see this when I, I have people in my office for, for various reasons, weddings, funerals, these types of things, and, and I'll sit them down and I'll talk to them about the gospel. And, and many times I've, I've talked to um, people and I've, uh, I've gotten into this and I said, I said are, you, are you Christians? Yes. Can, can you explain to me what that means? What, what is a Christian person? What defines being a Christian? And that's where I get answers like this. Well, you know, you try to do the right thing in life, and you try to treat people really well, and uh, you try to be moral, you try to reveal something. Or another one that I run into often is is when I do funerals, and I I meet with families, and, and it's not hard to begin to get a gauge on on what people are thinking and and where their confidence is. Because oftentimes, as as I meet with people, there's a general feeling. Sometimes it's an automatic assumption that everyone goes to heaven unless they were really bad. And I'm not even so sure what really bad is anymore. 
And, and that shows, you see, that, that there's an inherent trust or confidence in, in the goodness of a person. Or at least in their general acceptability before God. One of the most encouraging things, it's so encouraging for me, when I, when I do funerals, sometimes I'll meet with families, and one of the very first things they'll talk about is, did they know the Lord? See, that, for me, tells me you understand. Because the issue isn't what we have done or can do or might have done or we think that he or she did. The issue is, where were you with Jesus Christ? I see this in other religious systems that have, have steps and pillars of faith that rest a person squarely on what they can do and achieve before God rather than on what he has done in Jesus Christ. This is still an issue, folks. And I say that this is an issue for our mission, and here's why. Here's, here's my challenge to you. I want you to ask one person over the next week or two. Most of you won't do this. I hope you do. I want you to ask one person over the next couple weeks who you know is not a Christian, somebody at your work or whatever, you know is not a Christian. You ask them, do, do you think there's a heaven and do you think you'll go there? Okay. And, and by the way, I, I forget where I saw the statistic. It was a couple of years ago. Like 80 or 90% of American people think there is a heaven and are really darn sure they're going there. Okay. They're not sure about anybody else, but they're really sure that they are. Okay. So, so you're on safe ground. So, so you come and say, do you believe there's a heaven? Um, will you go there? So probably they'll say yes. And, and here's what I want you to get to. I want you to ask this question. On what basis? Why? Why would you go there? Why would you get to? Why would I? You may prove me wrong, but my guess is that what you will see is a huge focus on confidence, and persuasion, and what people can do before God not in what he has done for them. This is still an issue for us, for our mission. Don't misunderstand in this text. Some people might come to this and think, well, Paul's, Paul's just upset, you see, because he, he had a bad life. Of course he didn't want to focus on his life. He was dragging Christians into jail. He was persecuting the church. He was approving of people being stoned like Stephen in Acts 7. Of course, he doesn't want to talk about these things where he could measure up. But listen to what Paul says verse 4. Talking about confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This whole section is Paul defining for us what it looks like in his life to trust in the flesh. What it would look like for him. He focuses on, on two halves, really. One is inherited privilege, who he was. he was. He was born a Jew. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was of the people of Israel, these types of things. He 
circumcised on the eighth day, he says. As we said before, this was a, a symbol for God's people, Israel. It was a sign to them of, of God's blessing upon the nation. He could trace his lineage, you see. It was, it was prestigious. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means he was cream of the crop. He was advancing. Listen to this from Galatians. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was the cream of the crop. It says also he was a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee, verse 5. This was an extremely legalistic section of the Jewish people. The, the word Pharisee actually was derived from a word that means separated ones. Ones that pulled away from the community and said, we'll be holy. The rest of you don't seem to be wanting to do that. We'll be holy. And then they were the ones that, that, that established synagogues and tried to, tried to teach people what it meant to be separated to, to the Lord. This, this actually, the history of it's not important. This was a group that saw themselves trying to promote purity in the people of Israel, especially Sabbath observance and circumcision, so that they might experience the very blessing. says he was schooled in this. In Acts 5, we read this about a, a man named Gamaliel, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people. Later in Acts, Paul will tell his own story. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, ed educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee, not just a Pharisee. I was brought up by the top dog. I was taught by the best of them. Paul's accomplishments in the religious realm were partly in, in, in due to his great effort his zeal that, that, that brought him to the point of trying to stamp out this new sect called Christianity. He says, For you have heard in my former life how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This was his zeal for the things of Judaism. And finally, his last statement, maybe most, most audacious, as to righteousness under the law. The overall picture of Paul's life is blameless. He's, he doesn't mean to say sinless. Adhering to the law even had sacrifices for sin. It doesn't mean sinless. It means he followed the letter of the law. So if you have reason for, for confidence in the flesh, Paul says, you don't have more than me. This is why he says, if anybody thinks, if anybody thinks they've got confidence, let me, let me tell you a little story. All of this, you see, from a religious standpoint, was great benefit. This would have been stature in the community of faith. This would have given 
Paul access in religious circles and privileges in the society. It would have meant that he was esteemed in the eyes of people, and most importantly, on a very skewed view and understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, this would have meant acceptance before Almighty God. In a word, it was gain. This is why it is so utterly startling to hear Paul say what he says in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I want to be really precise here. I want to tell you what Paul is not saying. What Paul is not saying is that he lost something. That's true. This is not what he means to say. He doesn't look at his former life and say, I lost that. He looks at his former life and says, I consider it, I count it, loss. That's different. He's saying, I look at my past and I am making a mental decision about what my past means to me. I look at who I was as a Pharisee, as a blameless law keeper, and I say about that life, maybe could best be pictured with a financial illustration, I guess. If you, if you think of an old-fashioned ledger, you've got two, two real big main columns. One is your income. This is what is gain in your account. The other is your expenses. That, that's what's going out. Now, often people come to this passage and they see, think that, that okay, over here is, an, is the gain column. And Paul sees his whole life, his whole life in Judaism and all these great things that he did. Well, that's in the gain column, or it used to be. That's how he considered it. And then he says, well, well, I counted it as loss. Okay, so he lost it. It's no longer in the gain column. He thought it was going to be gain, and it's actually not. It doesn't go far enough. He's saying, my whole life in Judaism, all that I was in the flesh, all my confidence in the flesh, it's not only not gain to my account, it's actually a liability to my account. It not only doesn't benefit me, it hurts me. See, this is why I started with this hypothetical picture of a man drowning with a satchel of gold. It was something that was thought to be great gain. But in a moment of realization, it meant something different. It meant that that thing that was going to benefit him was the very reason he was going to perish. So Kyle, how in the world, how could all of these good religious things be a liability, a, a loss? says that these are lost precisely because of what he said in verse 2 3 excuse me about putting no confidence in the flesh 
those things aren't just a former life. Those represent for Paul, this life in Judaism, those represent for Paul a core level belief in his soul that what I can do will merit my acceptance before God. And if that is in any sense what is at the core of your being, you're in great peril. flesh gets you nowhere. Confidence in the flesh takes you away from the cross of Christ. Biblically, if our confidence and our conviction and our persuasion is anywhere and in anything except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it is lost. Don't cry for Paul. Later he would say that he looks at that life and all the things that he counts as lost. He calls them rubbish. That's the British word for garbage, I think. It's not a hard thing to let go of these. In fact, your mind so shifts at the cross when you, when you come to the realization of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done to provide forgiveness for you and dying as a substitute on the cross, all of a sudden, anything, anything, anything you would have put your confidence in looks like rubbish. Why on earth would I put my confidence in those things when I've been promised such a great hope secured for me by the Son of God? And see, this is the issue. We'll, we'll get to this more next week, but there's, there's a fundamental shift. Paul, this, this man of Judaism who had every privilege and everything to put his confidence in, all of a sudden counts it as garbage, counts it as loss, counts it as a liability. Why? What changed? He met Jesus Christ. And that's the same thing that has to change for you. Statistically, there's probably some of you in here who are not truly converted. You're not Christians. Your confidence is somewhere else. You're persuaded of something else. Listen, I, I get it. We, we put our confidence in a lot of things, and probably if you're in this church and you're, you're not truly a Christian, your confidence is actually somewhere else. You might have been brought up in a Christian home. Real quick, how many of you were brought up in a Christian home? Just real quick. Okay, a bunch of you. Put your hands down. It means nothing. Don't get mad at me. I, we're told to raise our kids. <laughs> Here's what I'm saying. Don't you dare look back and ever say, oh, look at who my family was in the church. Surely I'm fine. I've said it before, it's not original. God doesn't have grandchildren. Some of you will get that at lunch. The point is this, every single one of us has to come to a place where, where we turn away from those, those things that we can accomplish. We, 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 we drop our confidence in those and we say, my sufficiency is always and only in Jesus Christ. He, he lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. My acceptance before God is in him and only in him. And it will always, always, always only be in him. Amen? So you don't go through your Christian life. This is the problem. We get saved, and then we all of a sudden, Paul talked about this in Galatians, we get saved, and then we think, well, God likes me now because I do great stuff. This 
and there's a lot of great stuff to do as a Christian. And it is always, every day, every day you wake up. I'm going to quote here. You wake up astonished at the magnitude of what God has done for you. And then you do all of the things that he calls you to. And now it's worship, and now it's love, and now it's adoration. But never so that you can put confidence in the flesh. So, guard against self-sufficiency. It, it creeps in as our mission goes forward. It creeps into us as Christians. Guard against self-sufficiency. It comes in many forms. It comes from many sources. And it will always, always, always mean great loss. I'll leave you with this. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Let's pray together.